Hi, I'm Lan Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Claire Miller. Based in Cardiff, Claire is an award-winning journalist who works across both national and regional newspapers in the UK, specializing in data journalism. She is currently the editor of the Reach Data Unit for Reach PLC, one of the biggest newspaper groups in the UK. You can follow her on Twitter at Claire Miller UK and check out her website at clairemiller.net and also read her blog at clairemiller.net slash blog. Claire is the author of the Lean Pub book, Getting Started with Data Journalism, second edition. In the book, Claire teaches both the basic skills that are needed for data journalism and provides an updated account of the relevant tools and techniques that have evolved over time. In this interview, we're going to talk about Claire's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience self-publishing. So thank you very much, Claire, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hi. Hi. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people to tell us a little bit of their, their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in journalism. Um, so I'm from London originally um, and after growing up there and um, going off to university in Manchester um, where I kind of did a variety of history, politics, psychology, all sorts of interesting things. Um, I kind of decided that I really wanted to become a journalist. Um, I'd done some work on the student paper while I was at university. Um, so I did um, what's called uh, the NCTJ training. So uh, for me, that was like an 18 week uh, short course uh, where you kind of learn writing and law and shorthand. Um, so it's sort of a very quick introduction to all the basics you need to be a journalist. Um, and after that, I worked for a local paper in Kent. Uh, so quite a small edition of local paper. Um, I spent my time sitting in parish council meetings, listening to people talk about streetlights and uh, planning decisions. And that was the kind of thing I was doing, was those very, very local kind of issues. I did that for about 18 months, two years, um, before I decided that I wanted to kind of go somewhere a bit bigger. And that's kind of how I ended up in Wales. Uh, so originally when I came to Wales, I was working as a general reporter for uh, the Western Mail and South Wales Echo and Wales Online, which is the, the local newspaper and then the national newspaper for Wales and the website that's associated with them. And when I pitched up in Wales, I didn't know anybody. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any contacts. Um, so I was kind of fishing around for uh, story ideas that I could put on my story list for the news editors each day. So I had something to write. Um, and I've always been interested in numbers and data. Um, I did an A-level in maths um, because I just liked maths. Um, because I was going into an um, area that was to do with maths. Um, so I, I, I like numbers and I get numbers. Um, so when I was looking around for stories in Wales, um, what I discovered is that the Welsh Government and the government across the UK publishes lots and lots of data. Um, so lots of statistics on um, all kinds of topics. And these weren't really being picked up by any other journalists because um, I suspect quite a lot of journalists find numbers really, really boring. Um, but there was this sort of source of, of stories that I could kind of pitch each day um, that gave me something to write about um, and were potentially really interesting. Um, so that's kind of how I got started writing about data. Um, and this back in sort of 2011-ish um, was around the time that the Guardian data blog um, had become quite big. 
and um, seeing what they were doing um, got me thinking that this was something we could do in local regional news as well, um, that we could have a repository for these kind of data stories, that we could do things around visualizations. Um, one of the nice things about data journalism is that everyone's very willing to kind of share their skills and their expertise, and there's lots of free tools. Um, so it's quite easy to kind of teach yourself techniques and things and, and kind of experiment and find ways of building graphs or making maps or telling stories. Um, and it's really kind of developed over the last decade as kind of um, the tools have got better and easier to use and websites have got better <laughs> and easier yeah. to use. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how I got started with, with data journalism and then kind of how it built from yeah. there. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. I've actually got one of the reasons I was really looking forward to interviewing you about this was that you've been there sort of seeing all these changes on the ground in data journalism that the rest of us have just sort of been receiving, but you've been on the creating side. And that's more than just building the stories, it's building the kind of best practices and understandings amongst journalism and the teams on papers and stuff like that to, to make it to make it a reality. And I'm really interested in asking about that. But before I do so, um, uh, I spent a few years living in London myself, um, not as a child, but as an adult. And um, I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, talking a little bit about <clears throat> what part of London you grew up in, because it can really make a difference in your experience of the city where you where you live. Um, I'm from Twickenham, oh, okay. uh, so quite outskirts of London, southwest London. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I variously lived in um, outskirts as well, like Beckenham Hill and in, in Kent and stuff like that, and uh, you know, Balham and Calder's Green and, and various different places moving around. Um, so I was getting nostalgic a little bit when guests bring up living in London. Um, uh, and so um, so you mentioned um, uh, your story list, I believe. Uh, so when you went to when you were when you were working for the, the councils in or when we were when you were sitting in on council meetings in London or when you when you moved to Wales, were you um, I'm just sort of trying to get a little bit of a sense of the life and the, the day in the life of a journalist doing the kind of work that you do. Were you very independent in terms of you know, they just sort of gave you a desk and said, go find stories? Um, so with my first job, I had an edition of the local paper. So it was a weekly paper covering Seven Oaks and the surrounds in Kent. Um, and I had an edition which covered Westrum and the villages around it, which meant that I had to get three pages, a front page, page three and page five each week with stories from those areas. Um, and yeah, so I, it was fairly up to me how I went about this. Um, which is why I spent a lot of time in parish council meetings, desperately trying to find out what was going on um, and what might be of interest to sort of people living in the area. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, I think I think um, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with the idea actually of a of a council, which I, I'm asking you about because it's actually really it's really important to get a sense of the, the the kind of getting into detail kind of work work that you do. Uh, so, what is what is a like a parish council? Um, so yeah, in terms of kind of levels of governance, obviously you have sort of the UK government and then you'll have in the UK we have councils which are of various sizes but they usually cover either a large either a city or you know a large rural area um, and then parish councils literally cover a village um, or a couple of villages so you're, you're talking maybe covering sort of 2,000 people um, and they have responsibilities often around things like streetlights or maintenance of the local toilets, or they also um, get consulted on like any planning applications that are happening in the area. So if you want to build a 
new home, the parish council gets consulted, so they'll have a meeting and talk about the application and whether it um, will affect, you know, the look of the village. Um, so they're quite small, but they have quite a lot of powers around things that kind of matter on a day-to-day -day basis to people. Um, and they also sort of tend to be connected into things like um, we had police and community together meetings, which basically is bringing people who are interested in what the police are doing together with the police so they can talk about usually antisocial behavior and shed thefts and it's it's one of those, it's these things that kind of really matter to people locally because people really do care about where they live and they want where they live to be nice and to have good facilities and they care that the, the grass verges get mown and there isn't you know antisocial behavior and there's stuff for the kids to do um but kind of on a you know power level within the UK they are tiny um, but it's nice to kind of cover them because you you do kind of get to um, really know the lives of the people that you kind of cover. Well and I imagine people must have been really uh, happy to have a local journalist around to to cover those stories and to to talk to them about their own interest and what they're trying to achieve in their local community. Uh, yes, um, you do kind of make contact quite quickly with people who are very committed to their local area, who like to ring you up and, and tell you. Um, though interestingly, you'll get caught, uh, the best phone call I ever had was somebody who rang me up to tell me all about the plan for a new one-way system around the village green, who then finished off with a, did you know um, the local betting shops just had a, a, a break-in um, and oh a robbery? And you're like, could you not have told me that first? I mean, the robbery system is lovely and I think it will be really, really good for tourism in the area, but armed robbery at the betting shop, that, that's, that's a proper story. Uh, <laughs> good, to, good to have those contacts, um, even, if they, even if they wait to, uh, you know, even if they bury the lead, as it were. Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've got to say, it's one thing I found quite, I grew up in a, a province called Saskatchewan in Canada and um, there was just no concept really of kind of local participation in the way that I learned about when I moved to London and learned about local councils and things like that. And the idea that people, there, there will be people who, who do stand on the corner and look at that corner and they're like, how could this be improved or what's wrong with this? And they, they have a sense that there's a place where they can go and there's people that they can talk to about how to, how to improve it. And that, that sense of sort of local empowerment um, was, was quite striking to me. And so these local councils have, the one you'll, you'll here's the, what, I, what I've been sort of building up to, these local councils. If you go to the meetings, you'll learn all this stuff. You'll, you'll hear all these details. The local councils, since there's so many people participating and communicating with them and giving them their opinions and, and advice or, or what have you, uh, they have a lot of information. Have local, local councils in the past been very open and transparent with that information? And have you seen a change over time in how councils are deal, like, deal with all the information that they have or make it available to to other people to consume? I think it really depends on um, the local councils and how they feel about transparency and um, the relationship you have. So when I was working um, as a local reporter in such small areas, I knew the people in the parish council so well. I knew the parish council's clerks really well. So if I needed information for me, it would usually be me hanging around the office with a cup of tea while they dug out whatever I asked for. Um, so it's like that kind of level of transparency you, you don't really get unless you are very much embedded in the community. Um, and I, but I think some councils are better than others because 
if there's somebody driving it who's very kind of committed um it works but a lot of just I think it's not necessarily that they're not don't want to be transparent for a lot of them it's they don't have time it's another thing that's not really a priority so they're not answering those questions because it's there's something else that they feel like they should be doing yeah, there might have been a break-in at the local betting shop that they need to handle. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's, I, I, I say that jokingly, but the, the, the pressing, the pressing sort of day-to-day things that you need to get done to help people are, are more important, obviously, uh, than than sort of data management. It might, in, um, in some cases. Um, and so, uh, so you moved to Wales, um, and uh, you were working for Wales Online, and you launched something called the Data Store, which was a repository for data and graphics. Um, I'm reading here uh, relating to stories published in the Media, Whale, Media Wales newspapers, um, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that that project. Yes, yeah, so this was one I was talking earlier about how the Guardian data blog kind of had got quite big and well known. Uh, this was me going, maybe we could do something like this in Wales with the data that we've got um, and talking about stories that we do, and managed to rope a couple of people into in to this project from the office, um, one of whom was like on the IT side and who could create a section for the website. Um, so this is back in the days when the websites were notoriously clunky. Um, but it was, yeah, mostly about me going, well, what can I do along these lines that kind of from seeing what other people were doing, um, seeing the kind of graphics they were making, the tools they were using, the stories they were telling, and go, well, can we do this on a more local level? So can we do this about Cardiff or about Wales, um, rather than it being kind of national or international? Um, because there was all this data that we could get from the Welsh Government or from the Office for National Statistics. Um, and this was also sort of into 2012 when the last census came out and there was massive amounts of data. Um, census is like Christmas for data journalists. <laughs> um, we just get all this data that we can kind of build all these lovely maps with um, and write about how nobody goes to church in, you know, blind Gwent. Um, so having that kind of data and being like, well, what, what can I do? What can I build? Um, I think that's, yeah, it was mostly me just kind of experimenting a lot of the time. Um, whilst also coming up with stories that I knew would would work well for the paper or for online, but just have that data element. Yeah, and I imagine um, uh, part of what you had to do was um, sort of you know ask for resources and time um, and and make an argument uh, you know for why why the organization should devote um, more resources and time to data journalism and having the Guardian data blog be sort of there as a precedent would have really helped. Um, do you remember if there was a sort of moment when you realized that the sort of technology and in data that was available um, could really sort of drive, you know, just kind of endless data journalism projects? Um, I think kind of um, finding Tableau was probably um, one of the ones, um, just sort of a, a business information system, mostly. But it's when they were starting out, they were quite keen to kind of sell it to journalists is something we could make graphics and visualizations for with. Um, and it was quite useful for that um, analysis of, of data that was slightly too big to go in 
um, spreadsheets that probably wouldn't be called like big data, but it was more extensive. Um, and I think using that um, and looking at things like parking tickets, just a lot of this comes back to these stories that really, really matter to people locally. It, like they're not necessarily the big issue, but they're perennial stories people care about when you talk about their local area. Um, so looking at kind of parking tickets on an individual ticket basis and being able to go these are the streets which always get ticketed um, or the fact that um, you could kind of see where the um, trolls from the traffic wardens were going and then you could kind of tap into the stories that people were telling. So you had like a church saying we always get caught out on a Sunday because they know that we've got a service and then they will come around and take it all up parishioners or people going well they never come to our area we've got these huge problems with people parking badly outside our schools but nobody ever comes and, and tickets them because they're always walking around around the city center ticketing everybody there um and it's kind of having that data to be able to kind of um, look into the complaints that people had um, and being able to kind of look in more depth um because of having something like tableau where you could kind of visualize it all look at it all on the map and then dig down and kind of um, look at different elements of it. So I think that was the point which I was kind of going, actually, there's lots we can do. And could you use that? Could you use Tableau directly to sort of give the kind of production team what they needed to make the graphics for, say, the website or the, the paper itself? Or was there some, um, some extra step that needed to, that needed to happen? I mean, I'm speaking very naively about this. I'm um, so sorry uh, for that. No, it was, it was mostly me making the graphics for me. Okay, okay. Um, so this was back in the days when I was making all of the um, interactive maps and things by myself. <laughs> um, and then put just putting them on the website and having to get having to get things whitelisted so we were allowed to use it on the site. I think at one point I had to build something on my website that linked out from our site because I couldn't embed it in the website because it wouldn't fit and would break the like bounds of the so yeah a lot of around that time was the limits of my um coding and uh, visualization skills um starting to just do as much as i could um i mean the interesting one that's developed sort of with me and my team is um something called the real schools guide which is a big look into lots of data around schools the idea behind it was that lots of papers in this country publish like league tables of schools, but they tend to only focus on exam results. Um, so it's the same schools that do well, basically the schools that select for the pupils they know are going to do well, um, always come top. So we wanted to look in more detail um, around things like how do pupils from poorer backgrounds do, so those who are on free school wheels, or looking at kind of how well schools did with kind of pupils with different ranges of ability. Um, and there's a huge amount of data that's published, particularly in England, um, around results and um, lots of look, um, breakdowns by different groups of pupils. Uh, so that was the idea behind that. And the first iteration was very basic. And we basically cobbled together these graphs using Google charts and Google fusion tables. And it, it was basically copied and pasted code that called the individual school ID in and showed you the graphs. Um, 
it's now a very, very swish looking kind of page on my website because um, when I joined uh, the data unit, eventually we expanded to the point where we had a developer who could actually build these things and make them look good and make them work properly. Um, so that was a really nice development. But in the beginning, it was always about well, what can we do with the skills that we have um, and the tools that are free and available. Yeah, that's really amazing. That's actually really interesting to hear that it was how, how sort of in, independent kind of like the, the work was and that it was like you being, like, you know, and other people doing what you were doing at the time being very resourceful uh, and having to take on all kinds of different technologies and, and things like that and figure all kinds of things out that I imagine when you got into journalism, you probably weren't expecting that you were going to have to figure out. Uh, but now we're at the point where, um, you know, there's, there's, I mean, when the demands of mobile, mobile became real with smartphones and stuff like that, I imagine, you know, getting designers and uh, getting justifying a, a, a request for designers and coders to be working on a team with, with journalists probably became a bit easier, unless I'm, unless I'm wrong about that. No, I think that was definitely, because um, when we started with the data unit, um, we'd, it was me and my then boss, um, who was working in Manchester, um, who were kind of brought together to kind of expand data journalism across Trinity Mirror, as it was then, as it's now reach. Um, so we'd kind of shown that data journalism worked, you could get these great stories, that perhaps we could do it on a bigger scale and, and create stories or resources for more papers. Um, and I think from there, they will, there was kind of an idea that, well, it would be useful if, if they, when you expand the team, if you could have a developer um, and a designer. Um, and I think we, showed quite quickly how useful it was to have a developer and a designer because it meant everything we produced looked better and worked better and particularly that around mobile it was always kind of creating things that would work well on mobile um, which had always been the challenge um, I think when I was starting out you were kind of very much either sacrificing it didn't really work on mobile very well or it had to be very simple and quite small to work on mobile um, and I gather one very important feature of, of contemporary journalism and particularly um, things with graphics and stuff like that is that shareability is really important. Yes, um, I think either being able to just share it generally um, and having perhaps graphics that work um, on social media. So now some of the things we do are static graphics as well um, that do go in print, but also potentially work on social. Um, and there's also a lot of the stuff around um, widgets and interactives is, is whether you can have like a, an element of personalization and then share it. Um, and one of the things that's kind of developed over the life of the data unit is um, something called Pick, Pick My Team, um, which is around letting people pick their football team. Um, so a lot of these things started out quite simple. This is kind of Google, um, uh, survey type things um, but that's now something where you can pick your team you put them on the pitch and then you can share a picture of your team on the pitch with a link back to this um, so I think it's kind of those opportunities around if you're making stuff that's that can be personalized it's allowing people to kind of then share their version of it um, because I think that kind of intrigues people because they're like well if that's what they think the team should be well I completely disagree and I'm going to go you know put together my idea yeah, that's really fascinating. That's a really interesting uh, example of interactivity, which is something that, you know, all of us have seen sort of become more, more, more popular in the news articles that we read online, where you can 
you know, click on things and make things happen on the screen, uh, particularly drilling down into sort of different types of data where it's like, well, I want to see this demographic or that demographic on the chart and see how it changes and, and things like that. And I, it, it wasn't until I sort of was researching for this interview and reading some of the stuff that you've, you've written that I realized that this, this wasn't... <clears throat> This was per me personalizing, in a sense, sort of what I what I was seeing, and I just never thought of it in those terms. And that that really made made what made it makes it captivating, sort of make a lot more sense. Um, one sort of, I guess, I guess, kind of high level question I wanted to ask you is um, maybe I can get into it by by going back to something you mentioned, which was league tables for for um, education data uh, in the UK, which was something. I wanted to be now getting even more nostalgic. It was one of the other things that sort of I found kind of surprising about life in the UK was that data data around education was, you know, sort of a hot topic in the news all the time. And I do remember like, you know, it, it felt like every year there'd be this moment when the sort of results of the A-levels would come out. And if they were too low, it's like the teachers are failing the kids. And if they were too high, it, it was the teachers are failing the kids because they're making school too easy now. And I always felt sorry for the poor teachers and sort of, you know, education administrators who, who had to deal with this sort of like unwinnable unwinnable war for public opinion. Um, but that, that just leads me into the question of um, presenting people with arguments and words is very different from presenting people with numbers and with charts and graphs and things like that. And I mean, specifically in the sense that like, I think people are more willing to see articles written in words as things they, they can contest and charts and graphs and numbers as incontestable. Um, and the, the sort of flip side of that is that they, when they see numbers and charts and graphs, um, they think that now they understand the reality of things when, when maybe they, they might not. Um, in, my, in my own life, I've seen this particularly with things like financial projections and stuff like that, where if you show a group of investors, say, a, a chart showing some projections in the future, they might think that you're telling them this is what's going to happen when actually there's, just a, there's a bunch of assumptions built into your, your data model. Um, um, what you're seeing is the result of a bunch of decisions, not a kind of passive representation of the world. And I was just wondering from your perspective, is there a way you've developed of kind of framing the data that you present to people in a way that sort of lets them know this isn't necessarily as straightforward as it might appear since we were giving you this kind of finished product? Um, I think there's always kind of going, explaining sort of where the data's come from, how you've possibly put it together so sometimes it's kind of going it's come from this source they've done this so with some things with a lot of things you'll go you, it's possibly it's a survey um even if it's coming from quite a credible source like the office for national statistics it's not necessarily telling you the exact thing but it's giving you an idea um and they're sort of doing their best to try and keep up with what's going on um and sometimes with stories what you're usually also adding is comment from people who know more about the topic than you do. Um, so quite often you're following up with, well, what, this is what the numbers say. What does, what does that mean? So from charities or um, experts or, or quite often also the government to go and give their side of like, what, what do these numbers mean? Um, and I think potentially one of the ones that we do every year is one around rough sleeping which is a really, really hard story to get numbers on because the only numbers that exist are taken as like a survey on one night um, and put together in various ways. Some people, some areas go out and count the number of people that they can see, others kind of use 
um, intelligence from charities working in the area to try and work out roughly how many people they think are sleeping rough. Um, and the thing with that is all you can say is, well, this is what those numbers are. And this is how they compare to the numbers which were put together in much the same way in previous years. So they may be given indication of whether numbers are going up or down, but they probably don't give you a true indication of just how many people are sleeping rough because that number changes literally every day. Um, and if you compare those numbers to these other numbers that are put together in a different way, you can see that they're not the same. But it, it's that kind of like you're trying to give people the, the nuance and the details, but you also you're working with this data that's useful because at least it gives you some indication, but also it's not ever going to be completely comprehensive. Thanks very much for sharing that that particularly kind of um, difficult example of of, uh, of uh, sort of getting information where in a case where you just you can't you can't really get anything comprehensive for, because of the nature of the thing you're investigating and at the same time it's so important to try and do your best uh, and um, and present it to people specifically about you know what's happening in their community with people uh, who are homeless and sleeping outside with respect to data journalism um, and charts and graphs and numbers, uh, something happened a couple years ago that made that very much more important part of people's lives than it maybe had been in the past other than weather and sports, uh, which of course is the, the, the pandemic. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about how you've experienced this time as a data journalist, seeing this explosion of interest in and, and contestation over data journalism. Have you, has, has the way you've done things changed? Um. I don't think necessarily the way that you've done things has changed because our focus throughout has been very much around local data and how can we localize this. So we haven't necessarily done a lot of the big kind of data, the big explainers. It's always been around well, what's happening in your local area um, because that's as working for regional press, that's kind of more of our remits. It's like it's the, we, we kind of know that the nationals are covering that kind of this is the overall picture but it's more kind of like what's happening here. Um, so, but I think only what changed is kind of around a lot of spreadsheets being updated very, very often. Um, it's possibly the, the, the experience of the pandemic as a data journalist is um, uh, I was literally updating spreadsheets every day um, for weeks on end um, so that we had up-to-date figures on cases, on deaths. Um, and I think that's probably quite a common experience is that you just, there was a lot of that kind of underlying keeping the numbers going um, work that was going on. Um, and so were, were you having, for example, were you having other, other journalists sort of like banging down your door, like, you know, at sort of two in the afternoon, like I needed, I need some information for my next article. And then someone half an hour later saying I need it for my next article, or was it? In a lot of cases, they were they were um, powering interactives. Um, so, if you wanted people to be able to search the latest numbers, the latest numbers needed to go into the spreadsheet, so they were ready. Um, I think it was really interesting watching the way um, the government's response and the government's data evolved over the pandemic. Um, so, my job throughout has been upkeeping the list of hospital deaths. Um, spreadsheet updated every day um, though it's now not quite every day um, because they don't update it as much um, and so the first few weeks was literally the press office sending out a list of hospitals 
and the number of deaths at those hospitals. Um, and I think quite quickly they realised that was not going to be sustainable because it went from being sort of one or two deaths to being sort of 20, 30 a day. And, and at that, that point they were like, actually, we need to get a proper um, spreadsheet going out each day. So it was interesting the way that I think initially there was kind of like a very ad hoc response in terms of they knew that people were asking for this data and they need to put it out. Um, but they hadn't really thought about how they were going to put it out. Um, and over time, particularly for the UK government and particularly covering England, um, there's now an extremely good um, uh, database um, of cases, deaths, hospitalizations, vaccinations. It's got an API that works really well, so you can kind of you know, uh, pull the data from there directly. Um, and I think that's kind of the understanding of like what do people want to need um, and how can we give it to people in a way that they can either if they're the member of the public they can literally just come on this this website and look at what they want or if they are somebody who's more technical and wants this information in kind of the machine readable format it's also got that um i kind of wish the welsh government would do something similar because there just isn't as good um but this the one for the uk government in england in particular is, is kind of very useful now in terms of kind of keeping track of, of all the statistics. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. That's really fascinating to hear because I'm, I'm, you know, again, like myself and all of our, most of our listeners would be people who just sort of sort of saw these, these changes happening from the outside, but to hear about this relationship between the government and the reporters and probably a bit of back and forth about how to do it, how to best communicate and how to make their practices better is just really interesting. Um, actually, that speaking of government, so um, governments don't, aren't always so forthcoming. Um, with information. Um, and um, you write in your book, actually, which we'll, which we'll start talking about soon in the next part of the interview, about um, freedom of information. Um, and uh, there's something I believe in the UK called the Information Commissioner's Office, or ICO. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk, I know you write about this on, on Twitter and, and, and on your blog and stuff like that. Um, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the freedom of information process works in the UK. Um, okay, so yeah, I'm a big fan of the Freedom of Information Act. Um, so in the UK, anybody can ask to sort of public bodies, and it's a big list of public bodies from school individual schools through to the government itself and government departments um, about for any information that they're interested in. And the idea is that if they can give out that information, they have to, um, and they've got sort of 20 working days to do it. Um, obviously, there's a list of exemptions and reasons why they can, you know, uh, refuse to give out this information. It covers things like if it's a really big, complicated request and it'll just take far too long to do, so it'll take too many resources and they can refuse it, or there are also things around sort of personal information or health and safety or every other impact on law enforcement. So there's a number of reasons why they can refuse, but the general idea is if they've got the information and somebody asks for it and there isn't a reason why they can't give it out, um, they need to give that information to the person who's asked for it, um, which is obviously very useful for journalists in terms of finding out about all kinds of things that, you know, public bodies haven't necessarily chosen to publish um, because the amount of information that they do publish is often quite limited. Um, and there's often topics or more detail that you'd like, and this is just a way of being able to get get hold of that. 
Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and and by the way, uh, we will move on to talk about the book. But there's a whole section about 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 this in the book. Um, and uh, and if you follow Claire on Twitter, you'll see her, her tweet about it. And I'm just looking at your at your um, blog here uh, at the moment as well. And you you sort of have just really good examples of, you know, the very specific kinds of information that you can get about like council investments and um, uh, I'm seeing like calls answered but details missed and things like that. Like you know, there's very interesting sort of details that you can find. And I guess another kind of as we're kind of high level question I have is if the government has all this information and if they have to give it out, if people ask, why isn't it just public in the first place? Um, and let's, let's, let's bracket kind of the question of resources and time and funding or something like that. Is there some deep reason that governments are so protective of information? Um. I mean, sometimes it is just resources. Sometimes they just don't think it's interesting. It's it's really interesting sometimes what journalists will think of stories and what press officers are like. Nobody looks interested in that. And you're like, well, the views on the story online tell me differently. Um, so sometimes they just don't think it's worth publishing. Um, other times they don't want to publish it because they think it's embarrassing to them, particularly if it shows that they you know spent money that didn't achieve anything or they've messed up somehow or any of those kind of things sometimes they just don't want to publish it sometimes they just don't like being transparent um there, i mean some public bodies definitely have a culture around we don't tell people stuff unless it's for our benefit um and so just publishing lots of information online doesn't really fit that um I think in other cases, it's. Um... <laughs> no, I know my my, my question was so <laughs> my question was so vague. I mean, I'm, I apologize, bad bad podcast hosting there, but um, but but it is really interesting thing to think about. I mean, you know, because how um it can be specific to the as you're mentioning, it can, it can be specific to the culture of a particular department or office or something like that. Um, not too long ago, I interviewed someone for the podcast named Giles Turnbull, who worked on Gov.uk. Um, and he, he, he's still a, a consultant who works with lots of government bodies. And he talked about specifically how um, there was this one group he worked with within the government that was um, working with farmers handling some of the consequences of Brexit. And um, they, they discovered that by being open about their own challenges with, with handling the uncertainties of, of what was happening, they actually in, increased the sort of public opinion amongst their constituency for their work because they were just being more open and honest about it. But a lot of the resistance from within the department came from, well, if we show people our failures, they're gonna like us less. Uh, and it seemed counterintuitive to think that people would like you more for being open about your failures. But that's what they discovered, at least in their case, was that it, it humanized them. I, yeah, I can, I can believe that would be the case. And it's also, if you're open, more open about stuff, people can get involved um, or, they get better understanding because they're kind of getting more of the information. Um, and also you potentially pick up um, help because if you're being open about where things are going wrong, there's potentially someone out there who'll go, this happened to us and we did this and then, then we solved it. Yeah, no, no, that's a really, that's a really great observation that um, being open to, yeah, gives people the opportunity to help, right? Um, and, uh, and people actually like being able to help. Um, and they especially like seeing something happen because of, of something they've done um, in their community or in their, in their constituency. Um, uh, just moving on to talk about your book. Um, 
getting started with data journalism and the subtitle which I, I left out in my introduction, which is writing data stories in any size newsroom. Um, so this is the second edition of the book. Uh, and I was wondering if we could maybe go back to what was your inspiration to write the first edition of the book and around when did that did that happen? Um, so that was back sort of 2012, 2013. Um, so I'd been working on the world's online data store for a while. And this was possibly around the time that the data unit started. Um, I think it was kind of, I'd been blogging for a while, or sort of writing about um, kind of things I'd done and how I'd done them. Because as I said earlier, the data journalism community is pretty good at kind of sharing resources and sharing tips and talking about kind of what's worked um so I've been doing blogging around that and I think I was like thinking well if I can put it all together in in a book then that's potentially useful for other people who are interested in data journalism it kind of would give them kind of an overview of all the things that they need to get started from like the very basics of how spreadsheets work through to you know how to create maps and how to clean up data um, so that was kind of the idea behind it, was to just put everything in one place, um, so it was kind of a, a really good beginner's resource. Yeah, and the book I should mention is really great at that, um, at that sort of like talking like in detail about like, what's a spreadsheet? How does it work? Like when you click into it, what does that mean for what's going to happen to the cell and things like that? Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing that like, is very difficult to get right for, for these, kinds of, these kinds of books, um, and, and you do it very well. Um, and so since, since uh, the first edition came out, what's changed um, is a bunch of sort of best practices and things like that, but also kind of tools and things like that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of the more recent sort of advancements in say Excel are that are so useful to uh, people practicing data journalism nowadays. Um, well, I think the big change was the loss of Google Fusion tables, which was like the tool back when I was starting out kind of, 2012, um, it was relatively new then, and we were all amazed by the fact that we could make these great big maps with lots of colors on them and, and all these kind of things. Um, and then Google shut it down because you know it was a useful tool, so um, it sadly didn't survive. Um, and um, so that was one of the major problems with the book is it was like the whole sections on this thing that no longer existed. Um, so it kind of it was for me trying to find um, new ways of doing the same things that I've been able to do, do with that, particularly those kind of um, colored maps of, of things, um, and particularly the adaptability that it had, um, because the nice thing was that you could kind of make maps of any kind of area that you wanted, as long as you could find a base map. Um, and I think um, what I found was that both Flourish and Data Wrapper um, both offer that kind of functionality. Um, so we have been rewriting those sections to kind of explain how you can use both of those to kind of make your own maps. Um, the other thing with Google Fusion Tables where you can use it to merge data together. Um, so if you've got several uh, spreadsheets that you wanted to kind of put into one um, by matching them up on codes, one of the options is to kind of use Excel formulas to use VLOOKUP, but that takes forever if you've got massive spreadsheets with sort of, you know, 30, 40 columns and 10,000 rows. Um, so the nice thing with Google Confusion tables is you literally just smush them together um, and come up with one big spreadsheet. Um, I don't think you've totally found anything that's quite that level of functionality. Uh, but again, interestingly with Flourish, you can merge stuff together 
um, and that kind of replicates that functionality. Um, so yeah, I think with the second edition, some of it has been kind of finding replacements for tools that are no longer with us um, and trying to find kind of ways to do that. But I think that's pretty common in data journalism is um, quite a lot of data journalism is around solving problems, kind of thinking, well, what can I do with um, the tools that I've got to solve this problem they had? So what I had recently was um, somebody had asked me to do a story looking at where in the UK has the most Costa coffees, uh, which is a big chain of, of coffee shops. Um, so to do this, I needed all of the data from the food hygiene ratings. So everywhere that sells food or drink um, has to be inspected by the council food hygiene uh, inspectors to check that you know they're clean and safe and serving you know um, hygienic food. Um, so which makes it a really good resource for kind of getting the addresses and locations for all of the um, food venues. Um, but it, it's published in individual XML files of which is about 400. Um, so I don't really have kind of coding skills. I tend to do everything in spreadsheets and other tools. Um, so trying to find a way to kind of get all of these XML files into one. Um, I then discovered that you can do something quite clever in Excel to drag them all in in one go. Um, and use their kind of input uh, tools to make a great big spreadsheet with all of this data in. Um, so that was quite fun. I think it's a lot of the time is trying to find well, what have I got and how how do I not do this um, manually one by one and take twelve hours. Yeah, um, uh, I'm actually for anyone listening who's who's interested in learning about uh, what what Claire was just describing. She's got an article about it on her blog, and I'm, I'll make sure to link to it in the uh, transcription. Um, in a former life, I was sort of a financial analyst type and investment banker. Um, and I had to do a lot of, I mean, everything I did was in Excel, basically. Excel and PowerPoint was my life, uh, basically. Um, and um, and when you talk about doing things manually, I was getting flashbacks to the, to the, the dreaded PDF. Um, and so, I mean, so just for anyone listening, if you've never experienced it, um, you know, if you're analyzing, let's say, uh, food and health safety information to try and find out the locations of coffee shops, or if you're looking at, you know, any, any kind of industry data, like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, what are, what are the projections for um, coffee consumption going forward 10 years, you might find, you'll probably go online and you'll, you'll find some data somewhere and it might come in the form of a PDF. And there it will be all nicely laid out in the PDF. And when you try and copy and paste it into a spreadsheet, it's just gobbledygook. And then you find yourself, um, you might do things like, I remember I used to like, sort of like, get the free version of some optical character recognition sort of software and try and use that to sort of like save myself the time from having to manually type things out. And there were all these hacks has, and I guess specifically that was, that was quite some time ago that I was doing that has handling PDFs got any better in the last, I mean, since I guess the first edition of the book came out in about 2014 or so has, uh, has, has handling PDFs got any better? Um, uh, I think the, the free optical character recognition tools are better than they were because right. I think in the past they did use to just translate it from gobbledygook to more gobbledygook but I think there are there are more of them and they are a bit better um, and there are lots of tools that um, will take your information out of a PDF and into a spreadsheet um, and generally they're not too bad um, you will spend a lot of time kind of trying to get columns to line up and deleting stray rows but yeah on the whole it's 
slightly better than it was in that the tools are a bit better um, but there's still a lot, a lot of cleaning and I think it, it's spending a lot of time as a data journalist particularly and particularly doing a lot of FOI is spending a lot of time asking public bodies please don't send me a, a pdf please just send me, send me a spreadsheet yeah yeah no def definitely always getting the spreadsheet was the, was the number one number one thing um uh and um, I guess actually that leads me to ask another question about getting started with data, data journalism. And you, you mentioned early, earlier on in the interview that you sort of um, took, took a course. Um, uh, is, is data journalism part of sort of journalism education now for, for budding journalists? Yes, um, quite a lot of um, journalism uh, degrees and masters have um, either a module on it or there actually are degrees that are kind of um, more around sort of data journalism and um, computational journalism. So Cardiff University has a, a master's that is much more focused on kind of the intersection between journalism and computer science um, and kind of what you can do do in that, um, which is really interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it's much more widely taught. I think most journalists are going to um, university will have done some data journalism even if it's just sort of a short module kind of going through the fact that it exists and the basics um but that's kind of where a lot of people i think now get their interest is that they they do a bit of it and like actually this is really interesting you can do lots of things and these great stories and then they kind of start exploring it for themselves and they either do more modules or you know um, start looking around what resources there are and and for anyone listening who might be interested in uh, pursuing that path, uh, one one really one thing that you that you address it is um, that you don't need to go into it having already you know been a computer programmer or you know knowing knowing the R programming language or something like that or or being you know a maths a maths guru. Um, there's actually all kinds of really fascinating ways you can get started um, uh, using using tool free tools that are out there to sort of do your own data journalism. Yeah, because I think there's a bit of a misconception that you need to kind of, you must learn programming to do data journalism. And I'm really honest, my programming skills are very limited. Um, I can just about knock up a JavaScript chart. Um, but I've been able to do a lot of really interesting in-depth stories and quite technical data cleaning and, and, getting, and kind of finding ways to scrape data off websites. Um, using a lot of these different tools that don't require kind of programming language. Um, the vast majority of the stuff I do is done in an Excel spreadsheet um, because a lot of the data you will deal with isn't necessarily massive data. It's, it's either government releases or it's FOI responses that you put together as a spreadsheet that you can analyze in Excel and you can get the, the great interesting stories out of you don't necessarily need to be able to, to use R or code or use python to scrape things off websites well while those are great and useful skills and you'll get great stories doing that you can get a lot of brilliant stories without those um so just if you want to get started with it you don't need to be like oh god i need to go and learn python it can be like i just need to know my way around a, a spreadsheet and i'll pick the rest of the skills up as i go the um the last section of these interviews if the guest is an author is to talk about their experience writing a book um, or books. Uh, and um, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, for those interested in that, about your process for writing the book. Did you have a plan? Um, uh, you know, did you plan out every chapter in advance? Did your plans change as you went 
went through it? Uh, were they were a lot of the pieces based on blog posts that you've already written, things like that? Um, I think with the first edition, it was kind of partly based on blog posts and also kind of on kind of dividing up uh, into different sections. So going, well, there needs to be a section looking at visualizing maps, and then there needs to be a section looking at sort of charts, and they probably need to cover like where you get your data from, um, what is data. Um, so I think initially it was probably planned in that kind of like, well, what topics do I need to cover and, and where do those fit? Um, I mean, writing the second edition was much more about going back through the book in its entirety and going, well, what sections still make sense and work? So a lot of stuff around what is data hasn't necessarily changed, but then other sections, either tools didn't exist or um, things have changed or I wanted to expand things. So the previous section on FOI was very basic, just kind of explaining what React was and how it worked. Whereas now I can kind of be like, this is what you can do if you get refusals and how you can challenge them and put more detail in. Um, interesting, like in the section on cleaning up data, I think in the first version, I'd kind of written how to clean up. I had these particularly messy um, spreadsheets of data on parking tickets that were very much designed to be looked at rather than actually used. Um, and I'd use those as examples to kind of show how you can use various spreadsheet formulas to kind of clean them up. But I think in the first book, I'd got to the point where I'd kind of cleaned them up mostly. But then I was like, um, at this point, you'll just have to do this all manually because uh, you've kind of done as much to it. Whereas in the second version, I was like, nope, I have a, a formula that will solve this and get that done in like five minutes. Um, so that was quite nice to be able to kind of go back through and be like, my skills have evolved and also my patience for doing things manually is much lower than it obviously was back then. Um, that I've managed to find ways to kind of clean those up to copy down uh, dates and, and put things in columns and just generally get everything in a spreadsheet format that you can actually analyze um, in a way that's much better than it was sort of back in 2013. Um, so yeah, that was definitely the process with the, the second edition was kind of going through, expanding, adding bits. Um, the structure didn't really change. It's just the content is much more up to date and much more detailed in place. Yeah, and and I should mention, and in this this sections on cleaning data for the section on cleaning data in your book, for example, is full of like incredible time savers um, uh, for people who who work with these kinds of things. And I really like that description you just gave of a spreadsheet designed to be looked at rather than used. Um, I think we all know that. Oh, I got this. You know, I got the spreadsheet. Thank goodness. And then you open it up, and it's like, oh no, <laughs> this wasn't made. This wasn't made for people to kind of do analysis. Um, uh, rigorous analysis on. Um, speaking of, of tools and things and things getting better, um, if, if the guest on our interview on our podcast is a lean pub author, the last question we say for the end, the very last question is, if there's some terribly awful thing about lean pub that we could fix and make better for you and other authors that you can think of, or if there was some magical feature that we could build for you, um, is there anything you would ask us to do or stop doing perhaps? <laughs> um, I've generally found it like easy to use and quite intuitive um, and um, I think I swapped from writing it uh, in text files in Dropbox to writing it on the because for some reason it just did not like that so I was writing it in the thing I think the only area where I kind of struggled a bit was 
because my book has a lot of pictures in it um, because a lot of the examples are um, I've got pictures to go with them I think that's where I kind of struggled around getting pictures at the right size and that the formatting's right and so it took sometimes it took several attempts to get to the picture so it was either like tiny and you know um you can see what the heck was going on or um it was taking up the entire page so I think stuff around adding pictures to books um it feels like there might be like an easier way of of kind of I think at the moment it's like it's easy to put them in when you're working with the document but then you can't see what it looks like until you preview it and trying to get between the two to get it to look right is it was a bit time consuming yeah, thank you very much for sharing that. That's uh, that's really useful, actually. Um, yeah. So the when we when uh, Claire's mentioning preview, so what happens when you make, write a lean pub book? You write it in plain text. You'll you know up, you'll put your your image file somewhere, and then in your manuscript, you refer to that image, and you say, "I want this image to show up here." Uh, but you don't know what it's going to look like until you click the button to generate the the ebook files, and then you can see. Um, and having to do that over and over again to sort of try and get each image right um, can be quite quite. Uh, frustrating and time consuming. And it's, a, it's an area where we know we have a lot of work we can improve. Also, I, I know that you're writing your book in our browser writing mode. Um, and the way that resources like images are handled there could use a lot of improvement. It's just, just doesn't look very nice and, and things can't, lists can't be sorted and, and things like that. So that's an area where we, we could do a lot of improvement. One thing we could do is, and that we should do is sort of document, you know, what are the optimal, you know, sort of image sizes and, and things like that for different, the different sort of book page sizes for the PDFs and just a little bit of a guide on like what, what will images look like? What does an image look like in the PDF and in the EPUB and in the Mobi? And if, if someone's reading it in the EPUB reader on the web, things like that. So that's an area where it gives you a lot of improvement and I really appreciate your, your feedback on that. Um, well, uh, Claire, thanks very much for uh, taking some time out of your evening uh, to, um, to talk to me and to talk to our audience uh, about your experience as data journalist. And thank you very much for using LeanPub as the platform to publish the second edition of your book. Thank you. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.